0: you're born an Italian. If you want your life to be great, see that you're born an Italiano, and your
1: life will be great.
2: Hey there, Paizani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm John Viola. Wishing everybody a very happy Holy Week. We're coming to you on Holy Thursday as we approach the Easter holiday, and everybody is deep into, I'm sure their traditions, their culinary traditions, their religious rituals, and everything that means Holy Week in an Italian-American family. I am joined today by my partner in crime, the notorious POB, Patrick O'Boyle. And Pat, you and I have not seen each other in a very long stretch.
1: Years, I think.
2: I know, it feels like forever. I don't think I've even got to really catch up with you since New Orleans and, uh, and the awards in New Jersey.
1: They say absence makes the heart grow fonder. Do you miss me? Of course I do.
2: <laughs> yeah. You, meanwhile, you came to Arthur Avenue the day. I didn't even get to see
1: you. And Don't they say familiarity breeds contempt? <laughs> you just now, no, you just that's giving
2: that's me the, the, platitudes. Familiarity yeah. breeds what? Contempt. Contempt. Yeah. Yeah. But you, uh, you even came up here with Brendan. I know while I was uh, in New Orleans to try the the yes, Sicilian pastry. The pastries. baby
1: is getting big.
2: Yeah, she's getting big, right?
1: She's all your side.
2: Was she showing off her Italian to you?
1: Yes, she's. Very, she was. Um, What's the word I'm looking for? She was shy. She was bashful in the beginning, but then she warmed up quickly.
2: Yeah, she does that. That's her M.O.
1: What's the dog's relationship with her?
2: Uh, You know, we got to... Twelve-year-old bulldog, so he's sort of Menza morte. He's uh, he, he
1: pays no attention to her, but she does pay attention to him. She
2: does. She waves to him every morning. Says "Buongiorno, Rocco." She, you know, tries to, but he's he's kind of shot. I have to yeah, say, she's I trying
1: mean, to like, engage him as her first little friend. Yeah, it's not much engagement. And he's not dog. like I saw that.
2: Yeah, yeah, he, he's you know he's uh, like a hundred something years old, really. So, but bulldogs usually live to like eight. He's breaking records, so
1: he's like the oldest. He might be the oldest bulldog in.
2: I know. I'm. I feel like I gotta here. research that. Yeah, and he said, "Thank God he's in pretty good health." So you know, maybe we'll get in the Guinness Book. Of is World that record,
1: your Anglophonic, your Anglo Anglophileism? The fact they get a bulldog.
2: Yes, I think Nicole and I are both very Anglophilic, I guess you know we uh, we both have long histories, lived in London at different points, and yeah, I think it is. We call him an Italian bulldog though, because obviously he's been reared here, but he's in English and he's. He's a beautiful dog.
1: Well, your wife has that wee bit of Tuscan in her.
2: That's true. You know, she's got some English in her, actually.
1: Oh, she that's right. She does. She does.
2: Yeah, but through her Tuscan nonna, she's, they, I mean, this is a 23 Me ancestry DNA finding, so we don't have any genealogical records to prove it, but her, her Nona was, was, uh, came up with a lot of English.
1: They, the English always hit it off with the Tuscans.
2: Yeah, it's Room very with true. The
1: view and all that sort of thing. They kind of yeah,
2: like. Think about the. British colonies in Livorno and all these places. It's yeah, it's been a long. In Florence, obviously, it's a long history.
1: The babies so I think the ba- now when the baby was born, I think she was your wife's side looks wise. Yeah, but she is transforming to your side. She she
2: surprises me every day. Every day she looks different. Every she day she looks like
1: your mother now. She went I from looking so. like your mother-in-law to your mother. I don't know yeah, how that happened. I think that's true.
2: Yeah, she does. She
1: looks That's like kind of the beauty of a baby. Like It goes from one place to another, you know how it got there. Yeah, every day is an evolution with them, you know? I think she's like you, personality-wise. I hope so. I mean, I it's love my wife. It's a bashfulness to her.
2: Yeah. she. She. Her, I mean, we have a nice little connection, me and her. I get to, you know, especially until the studio's done, I'm working out of here, so I get to see her every morning. I actually morning saw and... the
1: box that you work out of.
2: It's pathetic, isn't it?
1: Your wife made note to make sure that I saw that.
2: You know what she said to me? What's she said, because, you know, I got to clean the house. I got to clean my my office. I have an office and we have a little atrium outside of it, which I've taken over with all my books coming in and patents." And,
1: it's really uh, the Italian American Museum uptown. <laughs>
2: it's so crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it's like a crazy. It's just a horde of Italian American stuff. No, let's see.
1: Everybody beats you up because they don't appreciate what you've done and what you have. But she said
2: even, even Pat commented that if you need help, he'll come up and help you because it's overwhelming. It's no, a lot.
1: I offered help because I saw she wants to kill you.
2: Yes, she does. I know. It wasn't I, like
1: I was like, oh Nicole, yes, this is a mess, and you were justified <laughs> in beating up on your husband. That was not that was not my position if she took it that way. <laughs> or or represented it that way. I saw the disgust and the anger in her face. Yeah. As if she would get a dumpster tomorrow if she could. She would.
2: She and would. And so
1: I pledged so be, so I pledged Brendan and I's help just to help you to dodge her bullet.
2: I mean, I gotta tell you, it's been this is the first time in my adult life that I've had everything I've collected over thirty plus years in one spot. So I've been going through boxes, some of which I haven't opened since I was in high school, and I really have—I have a collection that you got tells a museum store. I got a museum. I really do. Yeah, uh, and stuff that I think our audience would love to see. That's what part of why I'm looking forward to being in Little Italy and getting a lot of this stuff cycled through.
1: Yeah, but it Little Italy can't handle. It. There's no room. You're going to have to have uh, ongoing exhibits. Yeah, that's a lot of stuff
2: I'd like to give or, or you know, long term loan, some of this stuff to Mariana in Los Angeles and the museum here and other museums, because it, it's it really does deserve to be out there and tell a story. And I've got some unique stuff, you know, I've really worked hard on this, I have to say.
1: I saw which was unboxed was the clock of the Italian royal family. Yeah. The, that 1930s clock. And that was from the United States. Those made here. Yeah, it was made here.
2: It was an Italian-American.
1: For those out there, yeah. How would you describe it? They're like bronze, brass figure? Nah, probably brass. Yeah, brass. Yeah, it's a brass brass clock, but it's all built to look.
2: I've got a couple of those souvenir clocks. I got one of the Garibaldi Museum in Staten Island. It's a representation of the house and the pantheon that used to be over it. They should make
1: one of those of us.
2: Wouldn't that be great? A souvenir bronze clock of us of
1: But the big question with a clock is if you do Roman numerals, is number four IV or is it four eyes? Oh, it's IV. Some of them do four eyes. That's been a big question. I never noticed that. That's interesting. I know I gotta this look at it. This is kind that. of the the chamaria. Is chamaria <laughs> This is what we work? think of. That I think of.
2: You know, you were up here and you've been on Arthur 3 Avenue. Everybody reported to me. I saw David Greco the other day, he said he saw you and uh
1: I bought my Gazzagawa for David Greco. Yeah, the I, I got,
2: just got my stuff for the Easter pie making, which is obviously something we're going to talk about a lot. But uh, before we do that, I have to tell you the greatest story because when you're like us, right, every time you and I or the rest of the team get together on these episodes, when we start the conversation, I'm always thinking about, like, what's what's the Italian stuff that's happened in my week, right? Because we're we're always doing... Like, I spent last night with Mike Piazza at the Italian-American Baseball Foundation dinner, and um, obviously I was in New Orleans, and I got some time in Florida.
1: You saw Mike last week? This week? Last night I saw Mike. Did you really? Yeah,
2: he invited me to this dinner, uh, the Joe DiMaggio Awards they do in the Columbus Club every year, and uh, he was the awardee. And, you know, I've been working with him and trying to work with the Italian Baseball Foundation.
1: He's the nicest guy. For people out there, he's a gem of a human being. He's a very, the, very nice guy. Oh, my guy. gosh.
2: He he gave his acceptance speech last night. He was talking about his dad. Uh, I didn't know his dad was born in Sicily and came over at like seven or eight years old. I I'd met his dad a bunch of times, but I thought he was born in Pennsylvania. He we was talking about his dad and uh, Tommy Lasorda, and he he got so choked up. It was beautiful. I mean, here's this Hall of Fame catcher, this you know big strapping athlete, and when he talked about going to Italy for the first time, with his dad, he was choked up. I just, you know, I love the guy. He's so genuine and he's done a great job with the Italian baseball team. They have been defying all the odds. They did fantastic in the tournament and the world baseball classic. They just unfortunately ran up against team Japan, which may be the best team assembled, but uh, there's a lot of excitement about the game and uh, what they did. And so it was great. It was a great night, but yeah, I've been, you know, writing my notes for the Italian week. And I had a star next to the one because I spent a bunch of time with my dad and you know, my, my dad and his partner, Mike Rapoli, another Italian-American, are very active in the horse racing business. And they have a horse right now called Forte. Most of their horses have Italian names. Uh, who is the, was the two-year-old horse of the year, Eclipse Award winner, which is a big deal in horse racing, and has been the longtime favorite to win the Kentucky Derby this year, which is coming up. And he just won a really, really exciting race this last weekend at the florida derby the horse came from behind everybody was really excited really commanding performance and my dad was interviewed on the horse racing channel at the end and he was giving his commentary and his insight and it was all very sort of professional and uh he thanked the interviewer and started to walk away and he turned around and he looked at the camera and uh, i guess in anticipation of the kentucky derby he said put the macaroni on, we're coming home. And I thought it was the greatest quote I've ever heard because wow, how do you, how better to sum up when something is done, you know? So I told them I'm stealing that. I'm going to use it at the end of the episodes. It's my favorite new quote.
1: Are you the first Italian, because you won the 2017 Kentucky Derby.
2: We did. Yeah, we we did with another Italian partner of ours, Anthony Bonomo.
1: Are you the first Italians to win the Kentucky Derby? I don't know.
2: It's a great question. I don't know.
1: I can't believe, of all the things you've researched, you didn't research that? No, I haven't. That's got to be the top of the priority list. I mean, that's a huge deal if you're the first American to win the Kentucky Derby. But, you know, the truth of the matter
2: is, though, the Italians have such an amazing legacy in horse racing. People don't realize um, there was a trainer from Italy named Federico Tesio, who, this is, you know, 100 years ago now. But he wrote the original books on bloodstock, on training, absolutely radical and successful approaches to racing and training. And unfortunately, the the game in Italy has not held up its place in the world. It was once a massive powerhouse, um, you know, on, on par with the Irish and the English and stuff. And Italian-Americans have had a, a great and long-term impact on the game as well. So I don't know. I, I It could very well be, but I don't, I don't suspect that we're the first actually i think there probably have been yeah but
1: that's a strong that's a gut feeling that's not a factual yeah this yeah, is i gotta i gotta go through
2: that yeah i gotta but anyway it was
1: you could make that's a big deal that's definitely a big deal
2: it is certainly a big deal and i hope uh our paisani out there will root us on with forte in the uh upcoming kentucky derby god willing it's uh first saturday in may so it's coming up quite soon and if you're interested in it, or if you're just a casual fan, at least you know you have an Italian American horse in the race now, so something to root for. And uh, I just thought, put the macaroni on. We're coming home is is my my new signature closeout for everything I do.
1: How do you entice these horses to run? I wish I knew.
2: I wish I understood. It's all the I, jockey. Yeah, it's a lot of it's the jockey. A lot of it's the training. You know, breaking them early and getting them used to. You know, a lot of them have to be in blinders if they're wild or all different methods, but. I think these horses are natural athletes, man. They they really you could spot them. That's that's what the game is. If you think about the Kentucky Derby, it's a three year old horse. It's like going into kindergarten and highlighting who you think is going to be the best athlete in first grade. You know,
1: you should threaten to send them to Puglia. you.
2: I <laughs> because you know
1: how uh, how horses wind up in Puglia.
2: Yeah, they should do, Bravio. Or even better in Catania, because the street sandwich even Catania. Horse meat. Oh, it's
1: delicious! One John and I have had, had multiple. You know, we're going to lose listeners over this, but hey, say la vie. I mean, you know what? This is the this is the way the world. is. I mean, you is. you you come from a, a horse family. Yeah, and you guys come. are. I mean, not not in a brush sense, but <laughs> I mean, maybe I don't know, but maybe yeah. But but you're. I mean, like you know, you guys are passionate. What do you call horse horse horseman? Yeah, horseman. horseman. That's such yeah. a Britannic again. We're going back to the British sense. Yeah, yeah. But you and I were in Puglia. What was that 2016
2: a long time ago now yeah
1: and everywhere ago. we went there was Brajo there was horse meat on the menu real horse meat for those people out there and we're not talking like the, the beef was really tough no no it's real
2: horse meat and it's delicious and it's it's a delicacy and, and between Italy and France I think they consume much of the culinary horse meat in the world and yeah you know people get weird about it because of our relationship with horses but uh it's a big part of the tradition, and that's that's what we're here to talk about today. Really, is Italian traditions and traditional Italian food, and uh, you have brought us a guest who really lives to the mantra of authentic Italian food. Stefano Arturi is a cookbook author, restaurateur, writer, and uh, for our purposes today, the man behind the blog Italian Home Cooking, authentic Italian
1: food. Yeah, Stefano, I know nothing about you. There's one qualifying, there's one qualification that got you here. You're the only person that ever quoted me in a blog. You don't even know that. I see you like rolling your eyes there. You actually, I got like one line. I was so overwhelmed. I said, I got to have this guy on. You could, I don't. It doesn't matter what you did. You could rob banks. I don't know. You could be you could be a serial killer. You were coming on. Because I, I was in Rosetta, uh, a, a woman I'm privileged to call a friend, Rosetta Constantino, who has done tremendous work with southern Italian food in general, but Calabria in particular, she did a book on, if you are Calabrese, even if you're not Calabrese, if you're Southern Italian, even if you're not Southern Italian, even you're Norwegian, they got bacala in there, you have to get Rosetta's book. Rosetta's book is kind of like, I think it's the best researched book on real Italian agrarian Southern cuisine, like how farm people ate, how how a, a, a remnant of farm people eat, and how you can do things like make cheese at home. So we had become friends. And she did a book on Southern Italian desserts. And she invited me to contribute. And I contributed a recipe of my grandmother's. And um, Stefano, you had referenced it into a spaghetti. You had referenced it in a spaghetti pastiera. You didn't name me by name. Be like, oh, yeah, the spaghetti pastiera and Rosetta Constantino's book. I'm like, that's me. That's me. <laughs> so it doesn't Die. matter. You were coming on anyway. No matter what <laughs> you did, you were coming on. <laughs> you're getting the special Pat award because you're the only person who have ever, ever quoted me about that recipe online. So for what? that, I thank you. You have many accomplishments. I know, but I just want you to know that that's the best of all of them. <laughs> and so for that, I salute you. John has retired my, I, my kazoo. We're having kazoo taping issues, but I would have a special kazoo serenade right now for you. That's one of my other talents. <laughs> is kazoo playing occasionally yes, yes, about but the Steph- history of the gazelle. Stefano, I pass the microphone to you to tell us about yourself and how your genius, tell us all about your genius that you picked out my recipe. Tell us about everything you do.
0: <laughs> Hello there. Well, thank you, first of all, for inviting me. Um, yes, I'm calling you from Lucca in Northern Tuscany. Um, even if I live between Lucca and London, I've been living in London for 25 years. But over the last few years, um, my partner and I decided we wanted a base here in Italy and we chose Luca for different reasons. So that's where I'm calling you from.
2: Yeah, welcome. All the way from Luca, Italy.
0: Uh, gosh, um, so many already ideas and questions. Um, it's Easter now, Soon, well, a few days time Easter. So in Italy, at least in some parts of Italy, is pastiera making. And one of the many versions of pastiera is the one made with pasta, albeit is not, to be fair, the most popular.
1: So, Stefano, we got, there's people out there we have as listeners. Some people make pastiera and some people have no idea what it is. So, and jump in if you want to correct me on anything that I'm going to say, just to make it, explain it to the listeners. So, pastiera is is a term used for pies, Easter pies. In the area basically around Campania. And they go into two categories. There's a sweet version, which my recipe was. The sweet version is very common. And Stefano, you want to correct me, just jump in. And I would say, like the Baeza Vesuviana, the near the towns in like the Neapolitan, I guess the word they use there is hinterland. That's that's kind of around Torre del Greco, Arzano, Caivano, those areas around Naples. They use a sweet version of it's an Italian Easter pie. And then as you go into the back, i will to say back country, but as you go into let's say Avellino, the word pastilla in Avellino is for a savory pie. So it's a it's a spaghetti pie. It's spaghetti cooked with a, with an egg um filling. And that is uses let's say grated cheese and black pepper, even into the Chilento. The Chilento does a version of pizza again with um actual uh macaroni and and cold cuts. So th- those for those of you out there, they, that is that's what we're talking about when we're discussing bus theater.
0: Yeah, correct. I mean, first of all, let me clarify: I'm not a food historian. I'm um, yes, I'm a. Well, I was a professional cook. Now I'm a domestic cook, and you know, I books and I run restaurants, blah, 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 But I'm not a food historian. And I'm telling you this because right now there's there's been lots of talking. On the Italian press about this notion of traditional Italian food has, has become very politicized for different reasons. So I'm pretty sure there were people that will object to what I say, claim, no, that's not true, that's not the way, da-da-da. So this is what I know about pastiera, and yes, I did research it, and I'm, I'm your typical Italian mix of northerners and southerners because Some part of my family comes from Calabria, but my mom's family comes from Salerno and from Lombardy. But I was born and bred outside Milano. So in a way I consider myself northerner with a great affection for the South. But my culinary tradition, I would say is more northerner. My mom, she's still alive, God bless her, but she was a terrible cook. Um, so I grew up on frozen food and steaks, and it was only going to the south, to Salerno, or to Calabria, that I discovered, you know, the other side of Italian cuisine and all the beautiful southern southern food. Um, then I, when I started kind of cooking professionally and writing, I had to study some of the subjects, and pastiera, which is one of my top um, in the pantheon, in the canon of Italian desserts, for me pastiera is... One of the best. It's very unusual. It's very rich. It's not something which you would make or eat every week, but you know, once a year at least, you know, I think must be done.
1: now lana, once, <laughs> year. Yeah. once yeah. a year. Once
0: a year, lana, lana. so as you said, it's a typical. Okay, the savory version. I don't know much about. To be fair, I've seen it, and also before this podcast, I was reading old recipes. Yes, it goes back centuries. I would say that when in contemporary Italian food culture, uh, when most people mention the word pastiera, they would refer to the sweet one, which is generally made with wheat kernels. In a, not, in a nutshell, it's you know as, as you know, it's a pasta frolla, so Italian short pastry made with butter or with lard in the 70s with margarine, whatever. And the filling is... Wheat kernels, soft wheat kernels, cooked and then recooked in milk. And then, of course, ricotta, eggs, citrus zest, and then that unmistakable ingredient in pastiera, which is orange blossom water. Some people love it, some people hate it. I personally love it if used in moderation. And I think that's the special.
2: Mobile banking requires downloading the app
0: and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America N.A. member FDSE.
1: See, I belong to a group on the Sorrentine Peninsula. So my grand, my, my culinary side, my grandmother's mother was from Piano di Sorrento. Okay. And in Piano di Sorrento, we use the crema pasticciera, which is like a like custard or pudding. We add that in. So that's kind of like 50-50% with the ricotta. Yeah. But we've had big debates because my grandma's mother got to America in 1901. So my pastiera is like a frozen, fossilized picture of 1901. And if you get the really early recipes, the Bastiera recipes from that time period on the peninsula, because we only we only really got connected to the city of Naples. The Sorrentine Peninsula, culinarily, was very, well, it still is very distinct. But when they built the road that went from Sorrento to Naples about 1860, the provincial road, which is now Corso Italia. Before that, you had to get to Sorrento via boat, wow. so you had a you had a you had a row from from Sorrento to Naples and back and forth. But as the road came, and especially after the war, there was a big flood of people from Naples who moved to Sorrento. It was like the American moved to the suburbs. A lot of the Neapolitan isms came with those people. So we are Campanapostichetta people. So if you're in Sorrento. It's, it's a ricotta crema pasticera mix. And crema pasticera, it's, it's like vanilla pudding. That's the best word in English, American English to use. Um, but this is the big argument that I've had. When we look at the really early recipes, there is in Sorrento, and some people when you want to talk about a nuclear reaction from Italians? They don't have the orange blossom water in the recipe. It's only um, cinnamon. We don't have citron. So citron came with the Neapolitans, in in my theory, and the um, orange blossom water. Uh, my mother remembers being born and raised in the United States in the 1950s. In New Jersey, there were people who used rose water in place of the orange flower water. Um, I don't know if it. That's that's a very classic. My mother likes that taste. It brings. I know back. people. Who, I use a little bit of rose water. People, mine. and people went berserk on me. You think I called yeah. their mother the town? Process. They went berserk. <laughs> I know was like, "How people. dare you!" Vi- but see, Stefano, this is a great thing having you on the phone. You're like Nutella and tiramisu. You're the modern Italy, right? So you're a little bit of north, a little bit of south. You're not like um. So many times an Italian chef or a culinary author will be from a certain place in a certain town and that dictates everything they do. It's like we became France. So in my town, we use such and such an ingredient and that's what makes it authentic. But since you didn't grow up with this and you had to see it as an outsider coming in, you were able to learn about these things like pastiera from an academic sense. You didn't have a dog in the game when you came in.
0: No, well... <clears throat> My first experience with pastiera was when I would go to visit my granddad in Salerno uh, because he was living there and um, his second wife was a wonderful cook. So for this little Milanese kid um, brought up on frozen food and steaks because my mom was a working mom and she didn't like cooking, it was not paradise. It was revelation. My pastiera, my early pastiera, my first pastiera did have orange water, which they would refer to as La Fialetta. You could buy these tiny, tiny glass containers full of um, orange water. I think you make well, You make very good points. As I said, right now, literally over the last um, few months, well, actually, month maybe, here in Italy, we've been talking a lot about traditional food. From a very political angle, because I don't want to go into politics, but there is a push to kind of try to identify what is Italian, what is traditional Italian, very often meaning I reject what is not traditional. And that's very tricky, because actually there's lots of um, nonsense out there, but when you start studying, researching books, and you start talking with people, you realize that what you think is often not the case. For instance, you mentioned that you make pastiera with crema pasticcera, which is one of the variations for sure, and that it's in a recipe going back at the turn of the 20th century. If you check the book by um, Giancarola Francesconi, she published in 1965 this book called La Cucina Napoletana.
1: It's like the Bible of Neapolitan cooking. Right. Would you say that?
0: Yeah, you can say that. So, and she came from a kind of high class um, family. And to be honest, right now, yes, it's regarded the Bible. She does mention crema pasticera, and then she added, and now there is also the pastiera with crema pasticera, but is a later addition. And she was writing in 1965. So when she was writing this book, in her own world, crema pasticera was not one of the main ingredients. She does mention it but not in the main recipe, which means that cooking is ever-changing. The very same notion of traditional food is something which I use very carefully these days because you go into tricky territories because things are constantly changing. What is right for you is not right for somebody living in Piemonte or in Sicily. Um, And a lot of the things we know about Italian food is not true, it's nonsense, because Italian cuisine, basically, in the way we know it now, at least in contemporary Italian food culture, came around after the Second World War, even towards the 60s or 70s, actually, the way we know it. Of course, you had regional food, you know, which goes back centuries, but the notion of Italian cuisine, the way we know it now, like tiramisu. Tiramisu is the most important dessert in Italian canon, one of the most important desserts in the world. It didn't exist until the 70s.
1: I'm so glad you said that because I've seen Italy. Stefano, I made I made comments. There was an interview that I did that went viral that was not I if I, I regret it. And we were discussing um Italy. We were discussing um modern Italy and Italy has changed. And some things people thought that I had said were, were critical and, and it, it didn't fly well. But one of the things that I say critically about Italy and I and I'm and we agree on this, is that we've become France in the worst sense. So France is a country of like rigid culinary rules. You know, this is how we make, you know, Marianne Esposito, the great Italian-American chef, who's really the the mother of Italian-American cookery as far as cookbooks, she says this all the time, you know, in France, there's a sauce, and this is how you make the sauce, and these are the rules. And if you don't follow the rules, this is not correct. But Italy is not the country of chefs as much as Italy is a country of grandmothers. So you throw this in, you throw that in, you know, to back up what you've said, I've said all the time, if Italy is going to be this rigid with food rules, what's authentic? The tomato does not belong in Italian cooking. You know, the tomato, which is the symbol of Naples, comes in with with, with the foods of, of not even the Columbus, the Columbian exchange. It doesn't come really into Neapolitan cooking in an explosive sense, probably to the time of the American Revolution. Like I used to say this, John used to criticize me because I said so much in the early days of the podcast. The Sunday ragu, the tomato sauce, the gravy, whatever word you want to use, that is relatively, because Italian history is long, relatively a new introduction to the south of Italy. Because manesta maridata, which is also a popular um, food for Easter in the south of Italy. So it's for those of you who don't know out there, it's um, it's kind of like Italian wedding soup. I think that's, that's in some regions, that's how it was interpreted, which was um, boiled meats with greens. That's what you had on Sundays. In Naples, before the tomato showed up and got married with with macaroni pasta, you know whatever word you use. So, like my thing is, look at the kiwi, right? The kiwi is is the national food of of New Zealand, the definitive food of New Zealand, and now it's grown with an IGP status in Lazio. So Italian, I I feel that this kind of rigorous rules of what is and what isn't Italian is capping their creativity. And that's that's the fear that I have that Italy is kind of becoming like this frozen. Like we got to pick a year. Like my friend says this about the Amish. He used to say, Well, did they have like a big meeting and say this is we're gonna stop at 1840? Hmm. Right. So kerosene lamps, they count, but if you invent something in 1841, that doesn't count. Where do you freeze time? And yeah, I agree with you so much on that. And it's 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 hindering Italy's creativity in a sense, in my opinion.
0: Well, you know. <clears throat> As you know, we Italians are deeply... Cons- well, it's a deeply conservative nation. It's an all-people's country. I don't want to sound too negative, but the universal risk of stagnation, also intellectual stagnation and creativity.
1: Amen, brother. I said that, they went after me. And now, this is not a setup because I've been crying about this for two weeks. A stagnation, that is... I think that's the word that I was looking for and I didn't articulate.
0: Yeah, but you know, as we... Just going back to the pastiera to make it slightly more kind of concrete and practical, you mentioned no orange water. Now, I'm checking this recipe dating back to, I think, 1837. There is a book by this guy called Ippolito Cavalcanti, Duca di Pallavicino, that Signora Francesconi quotes often in her book.
1: He's like the Old Testament and Francesconi is like the New Testament.
0: Yeah, so sort of, yes, what's that? yeah, exactly. So he wrote this book, which he did, I think is called Trattato, something about Italian. Something cooking.
1: practical, yeah, I got a copy of it. Yes.
0: yes, and then there is a section at the end in Neapolitan dialect with Neapolitan recipes. And he has a pastiera, which is pretty close to what we make now, and I can read now, I might be wrong, but I don't see any orange water There is no rose water, it's just a little bit of cinnamon, which is another ingredient we use in contemporary pastiera. So things change all the time. The way Italians used to make, for instance, carbonara in the 70s, is not the way we make carbonara now. You can find recipes from the 70s using cream, using onion, using pancetta. Now, in Italy, in some area, in some intellectual areas, so to speak, if you dare use pancetta or guanciale, you are a monster. No, 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 that's not the right way. All this to say, things change all the time. Food is living. You can't put in under glass something which is constantly evolving and changing. So right now, I would say, yes, we do have a, structure in terms of how we, most Italians would make pastiera, has to be taken with a huge pinch of salt because each family has its own variations and traditions. I think as long as you respect some guidelines, but again, you enter a big, you know, tricky area because I tried pastiera with barley, I tried pastiera with rice, I tried pastiera with spaghettini, and of course, with with kernels for me the best but that's my taste i'm not saying it is the recipe for me the best the one i prefer most is pastiera with with kernels but definitely you can find both in books both in real life i.e when you talk to people because i think in the very moment you put a recipe in a book you commit a crime so to speak books are crucial and essential and important because of the testimony but you cannot kind of is almost freezing something which cannot be frozen. So you will find very many versions of pastiera with more, fewer eggs. And I myself, yes, of course, I have this blog where I try to write down recipes, but then very often I don't follow my own recipes because one year I want to put more eggs or maybe I don't have enough ricotta. That's
1: the most Italian reaction possible.
0: Yeah, one day, maybe one day you feel like throwing
1: something in or one day you got a little bit of something left over and you throw it in. That's the heart of Italian cuisine. Yeah, I mean, we come from a a nation of cooks. Where the vast majority of them, of the home cooks of two hundred years ago, were probably—I don't have a statistical number to back this up—but I feel that my my gut instinct is we're illiterate. And now they quote recipes like gospel and verse. You know, you had a home cook in seventeen ninety or eighteen hundred. The only dessert she probably had all year was that Bastida. They looked forward to it because that was a little bit of break, a little bit of when they when they celebrated that over Easter. That was their hardship of their daily dried bread or frizel or hardtack bread and and boiled vegetables and meat every on on very special occasions. So a lot of those towns any their meat recipes are relatively new things because when you had meat it was usually tough because it was a farm animal that was the, at the end of its natural lifespan and you had to kill it and eat it before it died and you couldn't eat it you know uh, and and to follow up what you're saying also, when you have these kind of rigid rules, you prohibit the natural evolution and development of improved techniques. Like I have a friend, she's kind of like the the um, head of the dicastery. She's kind of like the pontifex of the food fundamentalists on the Sorrentine Peninsula of um, pastry chefs. I would say she's like the top, She's she's not professionally trained, she's a home pastry chef, but I would say she's like the top expert on the Sorrentine Peninsula on desserts that are particular to Sorrento. And what she did was, you know, in a lot of the traditional bastida recipes, the egg whites. So you separate the yolks and you separate the egg whites and then you beat the egg whites into. Um, what would you call that in English? Montana de Neve. You would you you would um meringue meringue. meringue. You would put them in the food process or hand beat them and you'd beat them into stiff peaks. And then you'd incorporate the stiff peaks into the bastida to give it more height. So she came out. A number, uh, some years ago and said she's anti-beating the egg whites because she thinks that's a, that dries out the bastiera and the key to bastiera's success is for it to be moist. So she thinks giving it a little bit more height sacrifices the moisture. Mm-hmm. And to an American this just sounds obvious but she was going against the traditional canon of beating your egg whites into the bastiera and folding them in. And I took her advice because she's a very dear friend and she's a brilliant person. And I stopped beating the egg whites and I just incorporate the eggs in whole. And I can tell you it makes a better Bastiata. I think it's juicier. Mm. And I think that there are people out there who would go, no, 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 you have to beat the egg whites. Why? Because we've always beaten the egg whites. And that's what scares me about Italy. I would, you know, I find like Italian fusion cuisine a positive. You know, the brilliance of Italy is they would get an ingredient and do something better with it. Yeah. Give them give them an ingredient, and they they you know you know the the Mexicans had the tomato, but the but the Neapolitans made ragu. You not Stefano, you are not being married, right? So you, you, to the co- concept of well, this is how it's made. You can be a little bit creative in what you make.
0: Well, I'm sort of I've been you know I've been cooking now for I don't know maybe twenty five years more kind of seriously, um, and I'm self-trained I'm a home cook yes then it became my job but basically I'm a home cook a self-trained cook um, I used to be more precious about this word traditional and now the more I study, the more I research, and I guess the older I get I'm I have more doubts let's say I have more doubts I always question why or give me the source or, or give me why do you say this you know um. For instance, is nothing to do with pasirba. Is similar. One of the hot debate the last current month is about Parmigiano and Parmesan from Wisconsin, and this food historian saying that actually, if you want to taste Parmigiano, which is similar to what was made in Italy at the turn of the twentieth century, is not Parmigiano Reggiano, the one you can buy now in Italy that you should be tasting, but you should taste. Parmesan from Wisconsin, because that's closest to the way it used to be made. Wow! And that's because there's Italian connection, da-da-da. Half of the country went berserk, how dare you da-da-da. And this is a food historian with very well-argumented arguments. Parmigiano, the way we know now in Italy for the last 20 years, is pretty recent invention. The wheels are bigger, the, the, the grain of the cheese like different. They're different cheeses, you know, but just to prove that what we think now is parmigiano it used to be something different 100 years ago.
2: And that's a big part of the Italian-American culinary experience. I mean, that we talk about that on the show a lot. We get criticism sometimes for sharing our recipes and food inventions here. But not only do we have the, you know, sort of chicken parmigiano, which developed in this country in its own sort of third uh, way, combining Italian Uh, cuisine or or traditions with American ingredients, but we also have a lot of recipes that came over many, many decades ago, sometimes century and a half ago, and they are done in the way that things used to be done in Italy and have gone out of fashion. And so instead of criticizing them as a a bastardization of some rule-based Italian cuisine, our hope is that people on both sides of the Atlantic can celebrate the fact that we have a living time machine for our culinary history we, we can you can come to wisconsin and say, and taste what parmesan used to taste like that's pretty amazing when you think about it a lot of nationalities don't have that blessing
1: i'm amazed by this now i, I want to go out to, you think restaurant depot has wisconsin parmesan i gotta imagine they do yeah that's like i'm all excited about this now march is all about the women on media set italia Spend International Women's Day on March 8th and all of Women's History Month with your favorite ladies from Italy. Friday nights belong to Michelle Impossibile and friends. Enjoy music, laughter, and fun with Michelle Hunziker and her lifelong friends. Monday through Friday, get your daily dose of Barbara D'Urso on her talk show, Pomeriggio Cinque. And on Sunday afternoons, don't miss the latest in celebrity news and pop culture on Verissimo with Silvia Tofanin. Plus, Buongiorno Mama, series two on Saturday nights, starring Maria Chiara Gianetta and Raul Bova. It's all on Mediaset Italian March, plus so much more. Check with your local television provider and ask about the channel today.
0: So let me first say this, which I think, well, is something which had been believing for many years. Whenever I want to research a recipe, historically, I start from American websites, because for me, as John said, it's a time machine. I can see how things used to be made. Then, of course, there are books you know, written by Italian-Americans. But generally, I first go to a couple of very good kind of depository of old Italian recipes. But the, uh, the importance of Italians migrating to the States and the way they cooked is huge, even in giving an identity to Italian food in the motherland. It's, uh, it's something we, she, we Italians tend to forget, especially in the last few years, you know, how many we, well, our great-great-grandfather's whatever, grandmother had to leave because of poverty, generally. But how they cooked Italian, we we have a huge debt towards these people, because in a way they also brought back things which they would experience in the States, but not in Italy, because in the States suddenly you are Sicilian and maybe you're living, yes, with a Sicilian, but also with the guy from Veneto, from Piemonte. So suddenly people started experimenting and meeting new things, new tastes. And this then was brought back when they would come back or writing letters. Pizza, for instance, pizzeria, the first pizza place in Milan, I think, was from 1929 until the 60s. There were not many pizza places in northern Italy. Pizza places, where you sit down and your pizza, is more like a U.S. invention, then was brought back into the, into Italy, and then with the economic boom of the 60s, you know, you had the growth of pizza places. But it's not, because now we think it's, it's, it's a fact, it's a stone, it's something written in stone. No. Is a cultural creation of the last, let's say, 56 years. And the debt we have with these immigrants is huge here in in so-called motherland.
2: You know, I think the passiera is a great symbol because it's something that has gone, like you said, right, like a tiramisu. It went from its birthplace in the hinterlands of Naples and in, in the convents and cloisters of many southern uh, religious institutions and worked its way out into all over Italy now you can get it everywhere and there's different versions and
1: and all year long you know years ago yeah and all year long the first time i went to italy and i saw pastiera outside of easter season i was like horrified yeah but now it's become a, an all year thing people in naples now make it at christmas time christmas and easter yeah and here too but that's a that's a new thing that's a totally and i'm listen i'm i'm cool with it but yeah you got to acknowledge the fact that the all year pastiera is very much a modern is uh you know and, and cannoli in Sicily were only made at Carnavala time if I'm correct yeah so that went from a seasonal that went from a seasonal dish to something that people eat all year but you got those rigid rules and those things can't happen
2: but my point is our conversation about rules and traditions you know a pastiera is great it's a great vessel for this because it's different everywhere it's now it's available all year it's gone throughout this diaspora it's made in every part of the world now in the Italian diaspora which is you know about the same size as the population of Italy. So it is a great um, metaphor, I suppose, or analogy. I don't know the literary term, but it's a great vessel to understand the evolving ideas on what Italian cooking is and the word that I always hate, which is authenticity, because that's different for everybody. And I think the pastiera, we're going to have a lot of people out there in our audience who are making it uh, in the coming days.
1: So good. You have no idea how good it is.
2: Oh, if you don't make it, it's it's worth it. Yeah, it's definitely well worth it.
1: It's like my favorite thing in the world.
2: <laughs> it is Pat's favorite thing.
1: Like I've said, if I ever die and get canonized, my saint symbol is going to be a Bastida in my hand.
2: <laughs> the patron saint of Bastida.
1: And if they do a hymn, I want the Bastida. But John, see, Stefano, I don't know if you've noticed, but John has recently come out of the closet. He's come out of the Sicilian closet. See, he's part Neapolitan, part of him's from Puglia, part of him from Sicily. But Sicily has now overrun the John identity. So are you just going to have the little marzipan lamb? Is ba- has Bastiera been expelled? You know. Now that you're, now you, you're out you of Sicily. The John you know I knew that was that not I the make, John I know. That's you know, it. You, you really, walked out of the Sicilian being, closet. I don't know when that happened, but.
2: Now you're just being strunz. I You know I make Bastia every year. You make it based on a, my version of my Nona's recipe. It is a little bit more Sicilian. Maybe I'm slightly heavier on the uh, cinnamon, as you would say. Oh, absolutely. John loves, if you guys
1: are out there. John loves cinnamon. If you ever want to, he puts in everything. He puts in his coffee. If you ever want to get John a birthday gift, a Christmas gift, get John (laughs) cinnamon. John loves cinnamon.
2: I do love cinnamon. It
1: comes in trucks. They have to drop it off (laughs) the house in truckloads.
2: You're so bad. But the truth is I will be making it today as this airs. Holy Thursday. That'll be my day. And uh, I find that I'm making it for more and more and more people who miss it on their table, maybe they stopped making it when Nona passed away or whatever it is. So I make it for a lot of people and uh I'll probably be making, you know, 20 of them or something like that.
1: Can I put a, a new secret out there? Yeah. The crust in Italian, for those who don't know, is pasta flow. That's the Italian national word for the crust. But um when lard was unfairly um demonized in the 50s as the great culprit of, of health problems that are being little by little disproven. Lard was replaced by butter, but I have put leaf lard. Leaf lard is the, the, is a kind of lard that's made from around the organs. It's made from the uh, fat that's around the organs of the piggy. And it doesn't smell piggy. It's not the kind of lard you, you know, you fry, I don't know what meats in. It's a, it's a pastry lard. So it doesn't have the piggy overtones. Oh, it's a good idea. My pasta frolic crust has improved 5,000% from bringing lard in, but I don't know because I've had people say that Sorrento traditionally used butter. Because remember something, my grandmother side was mozzarella makers and butter makers. If you get all the um, old sentences, we were uh, butterara. I think the name was the word of a butter maker. So, did my great grandmother, as a kid, use butter? Because we 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 had the cows, you know. Did my great grandmother use the pig? I have no I have no clue. Mm-hmm. If I had asked my grandmother, "What are you worried about this for?" She would have completely dismissed the conversation. <laughs> you know my mother's tough when it comes to stuff like that, right? Yeah, but my mother's negative my mother's negative, right? let's Let's put the cards on the table. And if I make a change, oh, why are you changing this for? But my even my mother, who's a very tough critic, has approved the change of going from butter into the lard. It's just crispier. It handles the refrigerator better. I'm switching, I'm converting to lard this year. But that's innovation. I don't know what my great-grandmother used. I have no idea. What am I going to go back in a time machine? I have no idea. And that, you know what? That's the, that's the
2: summation and the point of the whole conversation. It's Holy Week. This is Holy Thursday as we air this. If you haven't made it and you want to give it a try, give it a try. Go out, find a recipe, and amend it to what works for you and your family. And amend it over time. And the bottom line is, and I think this speaks to the heart of Stefano's blog, Authentic Italian food is is not born in an academy. It's born at the table, and it's born in family. And so forget the critics. Forget those who want to put rules on it. Make what works for your family and what makes your family happy. And most importantly of all, make what draws people together again around the table. That's really the heart of Italian cuisine.
1: Because the memories you have more than the taste are going to be the people you had it with. Mm.
2: Amen. Amen.
1: And when they're not here anymore— you know, Easter was such a big thing with me and my grandmother. I could have eaten dog food and it would still have the same amount of, mm. um, meant the same thing to me because it was who you had, who you spent it with, who you ate it with. That's what transcends the actual flavors of the people. Yeah. And if you don't, and we have a lot of people out there, your family stopped making things, you've lost traditions. Go find out what your grandmother made, what your great grandmother made. Every town in Italy has their own Easter traditions. Go out and bake and do something. Yeah, do something. Just this, don't go buy I... Oreos in the supermarket and put. Go out and make something, bake something. Even if you can't do it time wise, order something online. It's all about getting the family around the table, even if they fight and they curse each other and they're yelling and they're screaming. That's still an Italian moment.
0: Can I say something sorry, about pastiera that sometimes when it's not Easter, when I when I don't want to go through the process of making the pastry, by the way, I use a lot to lard and butter. Even the filling itself, it's just delicious as a kind of cold dessert. So the wheat, cooked in milk, with some ricotta, candy, strega, if you have it, if you don't, whatever, cinnamon. It's something else, but still equally delicious. And somehow the essence of kind of wheaty, milky, creamy thing is still there. Far easier. You can buy jars of cooked wheat, which are pretty good, actually.
1: You know, Stefano, it's so funny you should bring that up. Elizabeth De Cuomo, who's the high priestess of the pastry baking of the Sorrento Peninsula, advises to get the jarred grain. So, for those out there who don't know, if you have to if you get the grain, we call it ugran and abudan, the grain that you put in the uh, or wheat kernels as Stefano called it. Um, for the pastiera, you have to soak it, and different people soak it for different amounts of time, and then you have to boil it. But the problem is a lot of times, and this is coming from the top people on the Sorrento Peninsula, sometimes you don't know how the gran is going to turn out. Yeah. Sometimes it's too tough. Sometimes, you know, different gran reacts different way. My mother used to say that, that I don't want to name who it was in our family, we used to make a bastiera with the gran. She said it was like marbles in the bastiera. You couldn't eat it because she never cooked it enough. And the top people on the Sorrento Peninsula are using the modern jarred grain because it's made professionally. And it's always the same all the time. It's foolproof. And it's for the novice who's just making this. It is a godsend. But also for the professional chef, it's a godsend too. So we've had long discussions in our fundamentalist group saying, okay, because now Elisabetta has has counseled, which I have adopted again, that you should just put the gran in straight from the jar. She does not cook it independently. Oh. And I feel better about myself because it's coming from the high priestess. It's like getting in, uh, what's it? Uh, not an indulgence, with an absolution from the Pope. I mean, if Elizabeth says it's cool, it's cool.
2: You know what? It's 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 how you do it. I mean, i i do a I do an allergen free version for my nephew. He's got all top eight allergen groups.
1: I feel so bad for that kid. As someone with food allergies. Yeah, but, yeah, he's got a.
2: Yeah, he can't have milk. He can't have dairy. He can't have eggs. He can't have wheat. But we still make him a pastiera. It's with rice, and it's with all of these different things. But you know what? It's his pastiera, and. uh to me, it's more important to have that on the table, no matter how anybody would view it. I've had people. I've, there's a bakery in Brooklyn that makes pastiera uh, cupcakes, and the the wheats inside and the.
1: Do they really?
2: Yeah, and the, they make the orange blossom water frosting, and they're delicious. So you know, remember the year that I accidentally made way too much filling? I, because I'm dyslexic and I misread my own handwriting, so I made like ten times the amount of filling I needed, and I didn't know what to do. So Rosella said to me, "Just fill up some cupcake tins and just bake the, the inner." And I did, and I put, I think I put graham cracker, uh, like on the bottom, like you would a cheesecake. It was delicious, and everybody loved it. So, do the stuff that makes people come together. That's the bottom line. That's what Easter's about. That's what being Italian is about. It's about family, and like you said, Pat, the people you spend it with. So, Stefano, thank you for coming on. We really would love to have you back. Talk about the Italian community and your experience in Great Britain. This has been a lot of fun.
0: Well, thank you. Buona Pasqua, whatever it means for you, but Buona Pasqua is good. It's, it's a good it's spring, so it's getting warm.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a lot to look forward to.
0: Let's stay positive, yeah.
2: Amen, let's always stay positive.
1: Buona Pasqua, Buona Pasqua, everybody.
2: Everybody out there, Bona Pasqua. Have a beautiful Easter season with your family. I hope everybody is gonna enjoy a little bit of pastiera if they can. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Put the macaroni on. We're coming home.
0: If you want your life to be great, see that you're born in Italiano and your life will be great. See that you're born
1: in Italiano.